I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's foreign affairs podcast. Today, I'm joined by Ben Hubbard, the New York Times Beirut bureau chief and author of the recent book about the Saudi Arabian ruler. The book's called MBS, The Rise to Power of Mohammed bin Salman. Ben, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. So you've written uh, what I think is the the sort of preeminent and, and, and authoritative portrait to date of the dynamic uh, uh, young ruler of Saudi Arabia. And what I want to learn from you today is as, as much as we can in 30 minutes about how Saudi Arabia has changed under under the rule of this young prince and and what uh, what's happened to the society domestically, what's happened to it regionally, what's happened to it internationally. To begin with, tell us what you learned about what kind of ruler MBS is. So MBS is a prime disruptor. And I think a lot of this you can understand by looking at sort of where he came from and, and the age that he was when he came to power. He was 29 years old when his father became king, and this is really when most of the world first hears about MBS. Uh, when I started working on the book, one of the things that surprised me most was how little we knew about his life before age 29. There's very little in the public record. You know, most people who knew him back then didn't want to talk about it. And so I spent a lot of time digging around, and you know, there's various things that I came up with that appear in the book. But one, one of the things that's most remarkable about him is all the things that he did not do before he, you know, became really the most dynamic person in Saudi Arabia. I mean, he had never studied at a foreign university. He'd never learned to speak a foreign language. He had never run a company that made a mark. He never got any military experience. He never spent significant time in the West, not in the United States or, you know, the, the UK or France or any of the other sort of Western uh, partners of Saudi Arabia. And, and those are the traditional path, pathways to power in the Saudi elite, right? Well, not necessarily. I mean, I, you know, the, the previous kings of Saudi Arabia, none of them were fluent English speakers, you know, so that wouldn't be. But but one would, you know, I think it, it, it's not unfair to assume that now when you do have huge numbers of Saudi princes who have done many of those things, that they would be the most likely to come in and sort of exercise great power on the part of the king. But instead, the king chose MBS. Um, and so MBS very much comes in, you know, he has a very Saudi background. He was educated at Saudi University. And you know, all of his work experience was basically working as some kind of an advisor to his father. So his, you know, his experience was very, very Saudi. And he's very much a disruptor. I mean, he's somebody who doesn't sort of believe in the traditional ways of doing things in a lot of cases. He wants to break the old rules. He wants to challenge conventions. Um, he's very millennial in that sense. And so, you know, this is, you know, sort of some of his earliest, most dramatic acts. We see the Saudi intervention in the war in Yemen in March 2015. You know, Saudi Arabia had been spending, you know, buying tens of billions of dollars worth of weaponry from the United States and the UK and various other countries for, for many decades. But the idea was that Saudi was never really going to use it. They weren't going to buy They weren't buying this stuff to go to war. They were buying it mostly to sort of underlie the alliance with these countries. MBS kind of looks around and says, well, we have all this great military kit. I don't see any reason why we shouldn't use it. Like, let's go to war in Yemen. Let's go bomb the Houthis who had taken over northwest, uh, northwestern Yemen, and let's make them go back to where they came from. And so he launches the kingdom into this war that's become this great quagmire. Um, you know, I, I think when it comes to the social reforms, which, you know, are, are one of the more positive aspects of his, his rise so far, I think he just didn't want to be bound by the conventions. You know, there were plenty of older Saudis who would have said, you can't, you can't change some of these rules. You can't give women the right to drive. You can't bring in movie theaters. You can't do this. You can't do that because, you know, because of our history of Wahhabism, the history of the alliance between the clerics and the royal, and the royal family. 
you can't do that because there's going to be pushback from the clerics and from the conservatives and it's going to rock the boat. And MBS just basically said, I don't care. I think this stuff is kind of out of date. I think younger Saudis don't want to live in the kind of kingdom that I grew up in. And so I'm going to change it. And so, you know, first thing, one of the early things he did was take the power to arrest away from the religious police, which, you know, took the heat off a lot, you know, the way that these things were enforced on the ground in the kingdom. And then he starts rolling out entertainment, opening movie theaters, bringing in concerts, monster truck shows, pro wrestling. And, you know, the, and so the kingdom now for young people is a very different place than it was before he came in. So anyway, those are those are just two examples of him just really being a disruptor, looking at the way that things have been done in the past and just, you know, saying, I'm going to I'm going to take a completely different approach. So the, the why and the how of of his transformative uh, moves, you know, some of which have been terrifying, some of which have been interesting. Uh, some have been couched as reforms, others as, as uh, increased authoritarianism. But in any case, the, uh, your, 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 your narrative uh, of, of what he's done raises a lot of really interesting questions that I think will contribute to what kind of leader uh, he's going to become over the long term. So I'll just throw a couple of them out and you can, you can riff on, on how you see them. One question is, is, um, is he, uh, is he, is he making these decisions as a result of temperament? Um, as you say, it just being a disruptor, uh, uh, how much are these decisions part of some kind of coherent vision that he has of a different Saudi Arabia than the one he grew up in? Um, and how much of, um, of these kinds of, uh, uh, of, of decisions were, improvisational, like starting, the, you know, was the war in Yemen an opportunistic improvisational decision? Uh, or how much of them are part of, uh, of, of him trying to wield power um, in, a, in a very different way? And the last one that, that comes up, you know, anytime you have a transformational leader, again, for, for good or for ill, uh, there's, there's usually, uh, you know, and sometimes we put in too much, uh, into trying to psychoanalyze, uh, these leaders, but, uh, th there's, it's an interesting question. What is it that makes such a leader willing to defy the conventional wisdom of their own, uh, country's view of the balance of power? So, uh, to to defy the religious police, existing elites, other princes, other centers of power uh, takes some kind of, uh, you know, I don't know what the, what the word for it is, but some kind of bra brazenness or 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 daring or recklessness. Uh, but in any case, you know, you're you're embarking on an experiment um, that has unpredictable results. Um, and I'm interested in to, to what kind of insight you have of, of how uh, this this guy came to be in a position where he was willing to uh, take actions that could have easily resulted in his overthrow, uh, you know, even before he had consolidated his own power. Well, I think on, on the question of vision, I think, I mean, I do think it is fair to say that he has a vision for where he would like Saudi Arabia to be. Um, you know, it's not incredibly detailed, but I think that there's a vision that he's been quite open about. I mean, the most obvious place to look is in Vision 2030, which he released kind of when he was on his way up, you know, and it had been developed with a lot of help from Western consulting firms and, and things like that. But I think, that, you know, there's no reason to doubt the sincerity of what he wanted to do. And Vision 2030 is an incredibly ambitious document. Some, some people would say, you know, there's, you know, it's Anyway, we'll get to the question of implementation, but just as a statement of where he would like Saudi Arabia to go, you know, he very much lays out a, a country that looks extremely different than the current kingdom of Saudi Arabia. I mean, he wants this to be a, a dynamic place that has a vibrant public sector. He wants it to have a diversified economy 
that, you know, breaks its, you know, quote unquote addiction to oil. He wants, um, you know, he, he even gets into things about social life and, you know, he wants men and women to be able to interact and women to increase their share in the workforce. He talks about increasing the, you know, the amount of time that your average Saudi spends exercising each week. I mean, it's really, you know, and I think in terms of foreign affairs, he wants Saudi Arabia to be taken seriously. I mean, he believes that Saudi Arabia is an incredibly important country in the world, and he wants it to be able to stand up with the other great countries of the world and be part of the conversation and be part of the decision making. And so, and, and you know, I don't think there's a lot in Vision 2030 that you can really disagree with. I don't think there's a lot there that's objectionable where you should look and say, wow, this is really a terrible idea for your society. I mean, obviously, empowering young people and diversifying the economy, it's you know, pretty hard to say that's a bad thing. I think the the rub really gets when you get into implementation is that, you know, he's he's really set such a high objective for himself. And then when you look at what he actually has to work with to get there, you know, it's just there's no way that they're going to meet these targets. Um, you know, you look at the human capital that the, that the kingdom has, just the, you know, the kind of education that Saudis are getting when they come out of universities. You know, when you look at how truly addicted the kingdom is to oil, just in a basic economic sense, I mean, to think that they can sort of pull all these people out of the bloated civil service and turn them into entrepreneurs, it's just completely unrealistic. I mean, they might be able to do it in a 30, 40, 50 year timeline, but they're probably not going to be able to do it by 2030. Um, so anyway, I think, but, and I think that throughout his rise, we've seen this, uh, this disconnect between, you know, this very, very ambitious vision of what he wants Saudi Arabia to be and how he wants it to change, but then just you know, the, the, when it comes to implementation, there's, you know, there's just always going to be shortcomings because of all these various reasons. And then, you know, then we get into the question of sort of, um, what did you call it? His, um, you know, sort of his personality or his personal attributes. Um, you know, this is somebody with tremendous self-confidence, um, you know, who really believes that he can do things the way that he wants to do them and that he can do things that haven't been done before. And, and I think this, this has, you know, probably led to some things most people would see as positive, like just snapping his fingers and taking the ability to rest away from the religious police. But it's also led to a lot of really dangerous stuff. I mean, there's quite good to reason, you know, reason to think that the, you know, the blockade of Qatar, for example, was a fairly rash decision that they hadn't really thought all the way through. I think the intervention in Yemen, they hadn't really realized that they could get stuck in war in this country for five or six years without making much progress. You know, there's the famous, you know, incident of the detention and forced resignation of Prime Minister Saad Hariri of Lebanon, or who was prime minister at the time. You know, that clearly, you know, there was an objective they were trying to meet, but then they came up with this sort of insane plan to try to bring it about, which was a total failure. So, you know, when it comes down to implementation, there's a lot of kind of improvisation and there's a lot of, um, you know, and then if you want to get into the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, this was, you know, this was just an incredibly crazy idea. I mean, it was basically like a bunch of guys get together and watch some spy movies, and then they decide that they're going to launch a very complex intelligence operation. And, you know, it's just not not the way it works. And it ended up making them look incredibly foolish. And I do I do want to get into that uh, because I think it's it's sort of become the emblematic uh, the emblematic story that encapsulates what MBS's approach to, to, to power is. Uh, you know, tr- traditionally... I understand Saudi. I, I used to understand Saudi Arabia as a sort of, uh, you know, very wealthy, kind of sleepy family-owned business. Right? It was a country that was effectively controlled by one family, but that family had maybe eight thousand uh, members, all of whom had some stake, um, and there was a mix of, you know, sort of uh, authoritarian disregard for the 
population at large is uh, uh, sort of input into how they're governed. But then that was somewhat mitigated by by the idea that the royal family had to had to placate all its members and its members in some way tried to to represent at least different constituencies, if not in a sort of democratic way, in some kind of consensus based way. Um, and that system, uh, I, you know, from the outside, it doesn't seem like it worked great uh, for 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 anybody, but it had certain advantages. And one was that it 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 slowed down uh, uh, Saudi Arabia so that, uh, it couldn't function at a high metabolism, but it also couldn't do, uh, great damage, uh, to, to itself or the region. But arguably that, that backfired and the sort of rise of an unaccountable, uh, sector of society that ended up driving some of the Wahhabi, uh, extremists and so on. Uh, if you, if you buy that narrative and, and what MBS seems to have done is he has completely sidestepped that entire system and turned it into, uh, effectively a one person rule. Uh, and that's something that a lot of Saudi experts said was impossible, that it, that, that it simply wasn't possible to sideline all these different constituencies, all these different powerful princes who control different fiefdoms and security forces and so on. And, and somehow, very quickly, he seems to have done that. Um, and and I think b- before we uh, go back to the Khashoggi story, I want to a- ask you, um, how, how in, in the hell did this guy, one guy manage to, uh, to overtake such a you know, d- dispersed and powerful system and, and, um, and do it with, with, you know, with the sort of signature speed, uh, and violence, um, uh, th- that he did. How, how did that, how did he pull that off? Well, I think there's a few, few things that helped him out. I think one is that he's a son of the King. Um, I, I think on one hand, tradition worked in his favor, uh, because it is, you know, Saudi Arabia is one of the world's few remaining absolute mi- monarchies. His father was King. His father had made it very clear that he was, you know, delegating a lot of his power, at least the implementation of of his plans to Mohammed bin Salman. And, you know, because Saudi Arabia is a traditional place and an absolute monarchy, a lot of people, you know, are not going to go against somebody who they believe is acting on the orders of the king. So I think that that helped him a lot. And even people who grew very angry at Mohammed bin Salman or what he was doing probably didn't do things that they could have done because out of deference to his father, who was, you know, a son of the founder of the kingdom and, you know, still had a lot of clout inside the royal family. And so I think that that helped him out. And I think there was also an element of shock and awe. I mean, you mentioned sort of the Saudi experts, you know, if you were to sort of go back to, you know, 2014, when King Abdullah was still alive and hardly anybody had heard of MBS and, you know, do a poll of the Saudi experts about, you know, oh, is, do you think it would be possible for a 30 year old prince to come and, you know, get rid of the religious police and, you know, throw, you know, put, put Mohammed bin Nayef under house arrest and do all these various things. They would have said, no, no, you're crazy. That's not the way that the place works. That's never the way it's worked. And so I think that there was, you know, this goes back to him being a disruptor, that there was kind of a shock and awe element that MBS just acted so quickly in doing it that I don't think it really sunk in until it was kind of too late for a number of the people who could have challenged him. Um, you know, I think people just assumed that like somebody like Mohammed bin Nayef, who was named crown prince when, when you know, by King Salman, they just assumed that this guy who was sort of this, you know, very storied intelligence chief who had helped, you know, dismantle Al-Qaeda's networks in the kingdom and worked very closely with the CIA. People just didn't believe there was any way that MBS was going to be able to get around this guy. And he ended up getting around him and putting him under house arrest and then later arresting him outright, you know, when, when he became crown prince. 
Um, I, you know, and if you look at the Ritz-Carlton incident in late 2017, this was just another example of MBS just doing something that nobody would have ever imagined that he was going to do. I mean, within, you know, a few, a matter of a few days, he managed to, you know, lock up a few hundred of the kingdom's wealthiest and best known businessmen and princes in our luxury hotel and take their money away. Um, and like nobody saw that coming, nobody sort of, you know, and, and so like, even though some of those people may have had the networks and had the finances and had the government positions where they could have pushed back, he just kind of beat them to the punch and he neutralized them before they were able to do anything. And then sort of by the time they got out the other end of the, of the Ritz-Carlton incident, you know, they lacked the funds that they had had. Those who still had government jobs, you know, such as Mithib bin Abdullah, who was the head of the National Guard, they, they lost their government positions and they just, everybody realized that MBS really meant business and that he was going to exercise power in a way that nobody had seen it before. And so, you know, he's, he's in a way just been faster than everybody else. And, and because the kingdom was this kind of sleepy place that was used to functioning in a certain way, I think it took, a, it took a while for people who may have challenged him to sort of realize what was happening because he, he was so quick. So domestically, those moves worked. He, he defanged those, those alternate power centers. And internationally, you know, now that we have a couple of years of distance from some of these incidents, his, uh, uh, you know, he, he failed to unseat the prime minister of Lebanon, but he basically kidnapped the head of state, humiliated him in public and uh, suffered no consequences. And then with Khashoggi, he, he murdered a journalist uh, who was, you know, a resident of the United States to boot and writing for a powerful American uh, media organization. And that, although it provoked a huge amount of outrage and, and uh, you know, justifiably an international crisis and a rupture with Turkey, uh, I, I struggle to see now a few years down the road uh, how big, well, I guess, let me just say, say this as a question. What uh, price has Mohammed bin Salman paid for that, uh, for that adventure? Well, I, one way to look at it is um, in early 2018, MBS took two quite remarkable trips. He had, he had been named crown prince a number of months before then. You know, he had by that point become known on the international stage. He had done a number of things that I think people who were watching closely were quite uncomfortable with, whether it was the Hariri incident, whether it was the Ritz-Carlton, the, the Yemen intervention, you know, various other things, but not the kind of things that sort of your average Westerner was going to get very upset about. So in spring of 2018, he goes to the United Kingdom. He meets the heads of MI5 and MI6. He meets the queen. He, you know, meets the prime minister. He sort of gets the, you know, gets the full welcome from everybody across the power structure. And then he flies to the United States and he spends a number of weeks. He visits, I believe, five states, District of Columbia. He meets with uh, I think three former presidents. He meets with Trump in the in the Oval Office. He, you know, has coffee with Mike Bloomberg at Starbucks in Manhattan. Then he goes to Seattle and he sees Bill Gates. And then he goes to Silicon Valley and he sees Mark Zuckerberg and he sees, you know, and Jeff Bezos. And he goes, he, you know, he goes to Hollywood at one point and he sees Dwayne The Rock Johnson and he has, they have a dinner party at Robert Murdoch's place. And I mean, he's just, you know, the, this was, you know, when I look at his rise, this was the high point. I mean, this was when MBS was like as high as he was going to get because he could just come. And the fact that he was in town, all of these incredibly powerful and important people would make time in their schedules for him. And they would get their pictures taken with him and they would, and they, you know, they were happy to talk to him about whatever it was he wanted to talk about. Um, after Jamal Khashoggi is killed later that year, most of that goodwill is just completely flushed down the toilet. And so, I mean, if you're expecting, you know, he was going to stand trial or something like that for, you know, having some of his agents murder a journalist like that, that was never really in the cards or that he was going to pay some domestic price and his father was going to remove him as crown prince like that. 
I don't think was ever really in the cards. But for Mohammed bin Salman, for what he wanted to do in the future of Saudi Arabia, I think he looked to the United States as a model. And he really wanted to have allies in the United States, not just in the government, but really in American society. I mean, I think he envisioned a future where American tech companies would open up offices inside Saudi Arabia, where he could work with Hollywood companies on building Saudi Arabia's domestic entertainment industry. Um, and, you know, some of that will come back just because Saudi Arabia has a lot of money and there will be people who will, you know, be looking for those business opportunities. But Bill Gates is never going to have his picture taken again with Mohammed bin Salman. Neither is Mark Zuckerberg, neither is Jeff Bezos, neither is Dwayne The Rock Johnson. So, you know, I mean, he definitely paid a price for these things because that the, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, I think, for you know, probably forever is going to be linked in some way to the name of Mohammed bin Salman. And the reputational damage there, I think, is major. So the so the idea is that uh, Saudi Arabia could have been a bigger, better emirates uh, because of its colossal amount of resources if it had been able to operate with some kind of restraint and within some kind of norms and by by exhibiting overreach and and this kind of reflexive brutality uh he Mohammed bin Salman has lost for himself the ability to to sort of tap into uh not just international goodwill but really like the 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 funds and the technical expertise that he wanted to bring to Saudi Arabia to transform the country I mean it's made it much much harder for him I mean nobody is nobody's nobody's ever going to forget that that happened and they're never going to forget that he was connected to it I mean I don't want to say never you I mean you never know how these things are going to develop and you know, how the region might change or, or whatever, you know, and some of these companies may eventually find reasons to go back to Saudi Arabia. But, you know, when you look at the amount of sort of curiosity, fascination, and I think even enthusiasm there was about everything that Mohammed bin Salman said that he stood for in early 2018, there were a lot of people who, you know, even though the deals weren't inked yet and people weren't quite ready to start opening up offices, there was really a lot of interest. And there was a lot, you know, there was this idea that, this guy is making these changes in this country that we've been looking for forever and he's finally doing it and maybe it's time for us to get on board. And, you know, he just, and he just kind of washed that whole reputation away. And now he's, you know, he's seen as just sort of another authoritarian ruler in the Middle East that, you know, you can do business with if you want to and there's money to be made. But that idea of him as this kind of necessary change agent, it took a huge beating from that. And what about the, uh, what about the, the pace of this transformation inside Saudi Arabia. I mean, huge, powerful constituencies, including the religious police and uh, whatever whatever support there is for the socially conservative approach that used to prevail. Are, are there are there millions of angry Saudis who who feel like uh, like this leader has taken away their their core identity? Um, has he developed large new popular constituencies by by doing things like bringing entertainment and and gender mixing uh, to the kingdom? How how is how is the experiment going at home? Well, I mean, I, sh I should say first, I haven't I haven't been able to go to Saudi Arabia since 2018. So, I mean, I haven't been there in recent years because I can't get I haven't been able to get visas. So is it because they, they won't let you in because of things you wrote? Well, they've never, you know, they've never put it in those terms. But the timing, you know, the timing suggests that they were they were not happy with things I had published. So, I, you know, it's a bit hard for me to talk about exactly what the mood is inside of Saudi Arabia right now. I mean, what what I what what I can say is that there are definitely there are definitely plenty of people inside you know there's definitely people inside of Saudi Arabia who are very excited about the changes that Mohammed bin Salman has made i think that there are it is a profoundly young kingdom um you know somewhere around 2 thirds of its citizens are under age 30 
you know, people that are very branched into what's happening in the Western, you know, in the rest of the world because of social media and television and everything. And, you know, I think they're quite happy that now they can actually like, you know, go to a coffee shop with someone from the opposite sex. They can go to the movies. They can, you know, do, and, you know, if you look at the lives of young Saudi women's, they're, they're just completely different. You know, they can graduate from university and consider a whole range of careers that they never would have been able to consider before. They can buy a car, drive themselves to work. I mean, you know, these are things that is kind of easy to scoff at in the West. But I think if you're, you know, if this is your country and this is where you live, these are major changes in your ability to live your life the way that you want to, to live it. Um, what we don't know are really what kind of opposition there is. I mean, Saudi society is a bit of a black box. Um, there are definitely, you know, large conservative parts of Saudi society that we don't hear from very much. And part of that's because, you know, Western reporters don't make a lot of effort to seek them out when they do get access to the kingdom. A lot of these people don't want to talk very much. I mean, MBS has, you know, there've been various arrest campaigns. There's been a whole authoritarian crackdown and MBS has made it very clear that if you support the changes, you can, you know, praise him and go on social media and talk about how happy you are. But if you're not happy, you should be quiet or you might end up in jail. So, we don't tend to hear a lot from people who are not happy about what's happening or who maybe have mixed views on it. You know, maybe they like this part of it and they don't like this other part of it. Um, you know, I, I think Americans don't usually like it when I say this, but I also like public opinion isn't necessarily that important in Saudi Arabia. It's not like MBS is ever going to have to like run in a primary against some other contender for king. <laughs> He's never going to stand for election. So unless it gets so bad that people like rise up against him, which, you know, I mean, it's just kind of, you know, it's a very difficult scenario to imagine in Saudi Arabia. Um, it's a country with no effective civil society. There's no real public opinion polling. If there was, you know, are people who really don't like Vision 2030 going to tell a pollster that they think the crown prince is like making bad decisions? They're probably not going to say that. So, A, I just don't think we really know how to measure the popularity and I don't know how, how much, you know, how much it matters in a way. Um, I mean, unless it reaches some threshold where there's significant pushback, I think, you know, people who aren't happy, they just, like they do in other authoritarian systems, they mostly keep it to themselves and try to figure out how to survive. I, I think it's more about, you know, constituency management in terms of constituencies like, you know, the military or the, you know, the, the elite that could actually undermine your rule. And in and, and this guy's case, it seems like he's done quite an effective job at, at neutralizing any potential challenge, potential spaces for a challenge to come from. Um, what, what about um, his vision for Saudi Arabia's role in the region? Um, you know, we talked a little bit in passing about the war in Yemen. Um, he definitely ushered in a real intensification of the confrontation with Iran. Um, and, you know, for a long time, there was a perceived mismatch where, you know, Iran has been able to work stealthily and quickly through proxies and alleys and hybrid actors all around the region, uh, sort of with with disregard for traditional rules of state behavior and statecraft. And Saudi Arabia was a sort of sluggish, um, uh, not very capable adversary. Uh, and he's clearly trying to uh, sort of meet muscle with muscle and force with force. What's your understanding of, of, of his goal for, for, you know, how much control or power Saudi should have in the region? What, what kind of region does, does he uh, uh, imagine himself or Saudi Arabia presiding over. Um, and if you, if you want to mention, you know, how you understand his overtures and openings to Israel, which are also, I think, interesting and sort of different, um, and his, uh, you know, maybe different view than his 
than his father's generation of how much he owes Sunni Arab allies around the region. Well, I mean, he's a Saudi nationalist. I mean, he very much, he thinks Saudi Arabia is a great place. He thinks Saudi Arabia is an incredibly important country and that it should be a player, not just in the Middle East, but on the world stage. I mean, I think he was very, you know, very happy that Saudi Arabia holds the presidency of the G20 this year. You know, there was a lot of enthusiasm inside the kingdom for, they were supposed to hold the big summit, I think in the, you know, sometime in the fall, which of course now is, you know, probably going to be virtual because of COVID. But, you know, this is where he believes Saudi Arabia should be at the G20, at these big international meetings, playing a role in these big international decisions. And so when you bring it back to the region, um, you know, he looks around and he believes that Saudi Arabia should be a leader just because of its size, because of its wealth, because of its military. Um, You know, I think that when he looks around and looks at threats, you know, I think he considers the Muslim Brotherhood a threat that had something to do with the blockade on Qatar, Although, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood's not really a force in the region the way that it was a few years ago. Uh, his main concern is Iran. Um, you know, he, he sees them as an ideological threat. He sees them as a political threat. And he sees them as a military threat, you know, which was hit home last year by the attack on the Aramco facilities last August. Um, you know, so I think when he looks around the region, he's trying to figure out, like, what are the coalitions I can pull together to kind of help me on the things that I care about, which I think is what brings us to Israel. I'm, you know, I think it's, it's quite clear. He said, you know, I have a number of sort of private conversations that he had with people. And then he's also said publicly, he, he just doesn't have the same enthusiasm or the same passion for the Palestinian cause that a lot of the older generation of Saudis do. He just, it just doesn't mean much to him. And I think that that is largely representative of his generation, um, you know, largely across the region, but definitely in Saudi Arabia. People just don't feel like they should have to sacrifice for the Palestinians anymore. It's just kind of not an issue for them. And you know, I think when he looks around the region for like, who's going to help me out with this Iran problem, he sees the Israelis and he says, wow, they've got a good economy. They've got a strong tech sector. They've got a really great intelligence service and they have a strong military. Like I should work with those guys. Um, I think that the extent of the opening is sometimes kind of overrated or, or overstated. You know, we don't obviously know what's going on below the surface, how much, you know, intel agencies and stuff are talking to each other. And there are definitely lines back and forth. I can't claim to know all the details but the, just the change in tone is remarkable. I mean, the fact that he doesn't really go out of his way to describe Israel as an enemy. I mean, the fact that he said in an on-the-record interview with Jeffrey Goldberg that they have a right to their own land and, you know, spoke about this kind of possible future where Israel would just be like another country in the region that has economic and political interests that overlap with its neighbors. I mean, no, no, no Saudi official would have said that before and certainly not MBS's father, you know, who spent years raising money for the Palestinians. We'll have to see kind of where it goes in the future. Um, I mean, I, I sort of have a hunch and I, you know, this is, I, I try to avoid getting into too much sort of fortune telling, but I think there's a chance this could accelerate after King Salman dies. You know, I think King Salman is somebody who spent a huge part of his life talking about the Palestinian cause and raising money for it. And I, I think it's a bit hard to imagine too much new action in that relationship while the king is still alive. Perhaps when he passes away, MBS will feel that he can, you know, this this could accelerate a bit more or come, you know, a little bit more out of the closet, as it were. Um, but maybe it doesn't need to. I mean, there's also a chance that, you know, Saudis and the UAE are already sort of getting, you know, what they want out of the relationship with Israel. And they, you know, worry what it would do to their reputation in the wider Muslim world by having a more open relationship. But, you know, the change is definitely there in tone, and, and it's going to be very interesting to watch over the next few years how that tone kind of trickles down into official back and forth between between the kingdom and Israel. I mean, it's, stri- it's striking how much, uh, you know, consistent thread in the things you describe is is uh, 
you know, transactional approach rather than ideological uh, driving driving this this leader's decisions. Um, and and another thing that's that's striking is uh, uh, the unpredictability, right? I mean, like in the uh, the, the Qatar blockade strikes to, comes to mind because you know okay, the the Yemen war and the confrontations with Saudi Arabia. I mean, was sorry with with Iran work part of a consistent thread of, of sort of existing Saudi interests, whereas the blockade with Qatar came out of the blue, um, was really disruptive to a lot of uh, people's interests, including Saudi interests, um, and has been maintained for years. Um, and another one that, that, that I think I certainly haven't thought about enough uh, is the oil price war, um, which which Saudi Arabia initiated uh, earlier this year and which Saudi can survive because it's so wealthy, but a lot of its oil producing neighbors, including Iraq, are are being savaged by. Um, and, and that's interesting because it suggests he's not concerned with maintaining, you know, he, he, he doesn't and perhaps correctly, feel like he needs to pay lip service to any kind of OPEC unity or even sort of fellowship with other Arab oil producers that he's just he's going to do what he sees as working in Saudi's interest. And he knows that Saudi is big enough or strong enough or rich enough to do what it wants. And and that is a um, not just a market change in style, but but actually a substantive shift uh, in a region where Saudi has for decades cultivated a sort of, you know, uh, uh, paternalistic uh, uh, sort of godfather-like position among among uh, Arab Arab states, um, and I wonder if 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 you see that as as uh, you know how how that plays out over time um, in in a region where Saudi is incredibly important because of the things it funds. I mean, I think the oil price war was a, was a fascinating episode, um, you know, because it did more than just sort of ravage the economies of some of the other regional oil producers. I mean, look at what it did to the, you know, the budget of Oman. You know, you mentioned Iraq. It's been tough on Bahrain. It's been tough on like a lot of countries that Saudi Arabia, you know, you know, usually would have sort of considered. I mean, it also ravaged industry in a number of parts of the United States where you had strong Saudi support. I mean, in the oil producing states in the United States. Um, you know, Saudi doesn't have a lot of domestic U.S. support. It's not like many Americans care that much about Saudi Arabia. It's not like you have a Saudi diaspora or a Saudi, you know, Saudi American communities who talk fondly about the kingdom. It's just, it just doesn't really have that. It basically has a relationship with Washington and it has a relationship with, you know, the arms industry and the oil industry. And then, you know, out of nowhere, MBS launches this oil price war that just ravages, you know, American oil producers and drives a number of them out of business. And, you know, echoes in a lot of these constituencies where you had oftentimes Republican representatives who were not very happy at what had happened to their constituents. Um, you know, so I think it, you know, it brings up this whole idea of the unpredictability. And when you talk to people in Washington about, about MBS, I mean, they can tell you, yeah, we're excited about the social changes. We're excited that he's not as, you know, he's not as into sort of the traditional Wahhabi um, model as, you know, that we saw before, like that's a welcome change. But, but what everybody, you know, many of the people that I talked to, what they kept coming back to is just this unpredictability. I mean, the fact that he can just launch an oil price war, that's going to have a huge effect on the global economy in the United States, across the Middle East, and not even really consult Washington on it. Um, and, and that wasn't the first time that he'd done something like that. I mean, the Qatar blockade was, you know, I think there was, I think Washington was informed kind of at the last moment before it happened. Uh, the intervention in Yemen, they told the United States very late in the game, right before they, right before they went in. And, you know, they kept telling them, ah, we'll be out of Yemen in a few weeks. And so, 
you know, I think that for, you know, countries like the United States that do have historical relations with Saudi Arabia, that's one of the tricks of the MBS era is how do we deal with this, with this unpredictability? I mean, how do we deal with the fact that we have, you know, this, this person running the kingdom who can just wake up in the morning and do something nobody expected. And then we've got to kind of deal with the fallout and, um, you know, and I think that's, that's really where a lot of the concern about MBS is certainly in Washington. And I think elsewhere across the region as well. My last question, uh, is on the, the, issue that I think is more consistently than any other in my lifetime brought Saudi Arabia onto the radar of Americans. And that's the uh, perceived export of Wahhabism or the you know Saudi role either passively or actively in allowing extremist ideologies to to gestate and, and often to thrive in, in these sort of Saudi funded religious uh, organizations with international outreach. Um, is that uh, is that a problem that's resolved uh, under MBS in which which we don't need to expect to see again? I mean, I'll preface anything I say about it by, I, I, I'm still amazed. I mean, I've been writing about Saudi Arabia since what, 2013, and I still have a fairly vague picture of how this all works. I mean, it's one of these topics that a lot of people talk about, but then you try to get into specifics of exactly how it works and where and how much money's involved and who's involved and things tend to get vague very quickly. Um, what, what I would say is that MBS, I have no reason to believe that MBS is invested, is personally invested in continuing that endeavor. Like, I just don't think he cares that much. I think that he realizes that it has been a liability in terms of the kingdom's international reputation, certainly in the West. Um, I don't think, I don't have any reason to believe that he has an ideological affinity with the very hardline Wahhabis who used to, you know, have kind of a free reign to go to Pakistan or go to Indonesia or go to various other you know, Muslim countries and, um, you know, set up associations and things like that. I have no reason to believe that MBS is sympathetic to those guys, whether or not he's been able to shut it all down or, or that I, I just, I don't, I don't really know, but I don't, I don't see any reason to believe that MBS has, or would be interested in throwing the weight of, of his office behind that and, and kind of overseeing that sort of a process. I just don't think he, you know, it's just not the kind of thing that he's interested in. Um, you know, and there's, you know, you can go read Tom Friedman's column where, you know, Tom Friedman talks about this being one of, one, you know, one of the greatest things about the rise of MBS is that he's not interested in the spread of international Wahhabism. And I don't, I don't quite, on the other hand, I don't take it quite that far. I think that a lot of the damage from that process is already done. Uh, I think that international Salafism has been kind of out of the Saudis hands for quite a long time now. And it's, you know, if you consider it a threat, it's alive and well and operating on its own in these, in these countries without you know, without a lot of Saudi input in many cases. And um, so the fact that MBS kind of changes course, I don't think that everybody, you know, people don't, people across the Muslim world don't look to Saudi Arabia for guidance in the way that they probably did 10, 20 years ago. Um, and so some people might notice it and whatever, but I, you know, I don't think that like a bunch of Salafis in Egypt or in Pakistan or in other places are going to sort of look at what MBS is doing and suddenly decide they don't want to be Salafis anymore. Yeah, and in, and in twenty years we'll be able to assess uh, whether top-down social transformation by fiat really works. And there's you know plenty of evidence, historical evidence from Ataturk in Turkey and uh, uh, Nasser in Egypt that uh, you can't you can't legislate from above uh, people's social attitudes. Although you you can at least temporarily change state behavior. So I'm. I'm curious. I mean, I'm a skeptic that that it's possible to change deeply held attitudes by uh, ordering changes in behavior, but that that's definitely part of the experiment that's underway 
in Saudi Arabia today. Well, in 2040, we'll have to do another podcast and we'll see where we stand. <laughs> Listen, Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. And uh, it's great, uh, great to hear your thoughts on uh, Saudi's unfolding role in the region. And uh, to listeners of, of the podcast, I encourage you to read Ben's book. It's called MBS, The Rise to Power of Mohammed bin Salman. And it's not only insightful, but it's a great read. Uh, ben, thanks, uh, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. You've been listening to Order from Ashes, the international affairs podcast from the Century Foundation. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It'll make it easier for other listeners to find us and help us to keep producing these conversations. Thanks for listening. Till next time.